Hey, what's up, guys? My name is Tony J. Robinson, host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast, and you are listening to the RE Social Podcast. You're listening to the RE Social Podcast with your hosts, Andrew and Vince from Onvi Invest. For more information, go to onviinvest.com. What's up, you guys? So welcome to another episode of RE Social. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Tony Robinson. How are you? I'm I'm doing well, guys. I, I appreciate you having me on, and uh, excited to hopefully give some value to to your audience here. Do you uh, do you uh, do you have people who uh, come up to you randomly and they are like all starstruck because uh, from bigger pockets? You know, it, it it does happen from time to time, man. I'm I'm super blessed and fortunate to to be in a position where we get you know a lot of folks that have resonated with uh, the message we're trying to share, and I'm, I'm just super grateful and humbled, man, that the people even care what I have to say these days. Yeah, man, your your story is so unique. I mean, I know all about you know you because I've been like stalking you online for the last few years. <laughs> um, I even knew about your podcast before you were on Bigger Pockets. I know you had a right. podcast before you bought your first property, right? I I did, man, and uh, it was called Your First Real Estate Investment, and uh, all I did was interview people about their very first deal. And uh, you know, I was super fortunate to meet a lot of uh, people through that podcast. But my advice to everyone that uh, ideally wants to build a relatively large real estate portfolio is to focus on expanding your network. Uh, so for me, I didn't know anyone at all really that was real estate investing. So that podcast is my way of networking with other investors and it, uh, it paid dividends in ways that I never could have imagined. That's awesome. And so, you know, so, um, like I said, I know who you are and everything. So for the audience who don't know who you are, can you give them like a 90 second intro? Yeah, of course, man. Uh, my name is Tony J. Robinson. Uh, not to be confused with Tony Robbins. Uh, if, if that's the podcast you're hoping to listen to, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But uh, I'm the co-host of the Real Estate Rookie Podcast over on the Bigger Pockets Network. And I mean, we're the, the the second largest real estate podcast on the planet. Get almost, I think, a million downloads a month. So we're, we're able to touch uh, a lot of people through that podcast. Uh, and then my wife and I, uh, we're better known as Real Estate Robinsons. We run the Real Estate Robinsons YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, we're one of the larger uh, channels on YouTube about short-term rentals. And uh, we host events. We have coaching programs and content and courses. And uh, we're still very focused on growing our real estate business, man. So we're we're just uh, a lot of irons in the fire right now. And, and we're just excited to be to be growing it all. When you started, um, did you uh, start with like a few million dollars? Your family handed you down and that's how you were able to buy? How did you start? Yeah, man. I'm actually a trust fund baby. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, man. You know, I come from a pretty humble beginnings. You know, my my mom, you know, worked hard for me growing up, worked two jobs for for a good chunk of my life. And, you know, spent most of my, my adolescence with her. Uh, had a son when I was 16 years old. So I became a dad at a, at a very early age. You know, I... I, I you know, I had, a, I think, a, a strong motivation to, to try and really figure life out uh, sooner than a lot of people do. So gra graduated from high school, um, went to college, got a degree, uh, you know, was relatively successful after graduating, was able to climb the corporate ladder pretty quickly and uh, use the funds from my day job to start investing in real estate. And, you know, uh, two days before Christmas 2020, I ended up unexpectedly losing my job. And at the time, my wife wasn't working because you know my, my salary was was decent enough for her to stay home. So we went from uh, you know very comfortable lifestyle to like holy 
what are we going to do uh, in, in the span of one morning? And it was at that moment that we really decided to double down on our real estate business. And we, the, the morning that I got fired, we had two active short-term rentals. And uh, a year later, we finished with about 15. Uh, so we really doubled down on, on trying to grow the business. And yeah, man, been, been, been focused on that ever since. And was that, uh, did you have something to say? Oh, so much to crack open. Uh, yeah. I'm the manager. I'm the guy who does all the Airbnbs on our mm-hmm. stuff. So I'm super excited to, uh, I mean, I could sit here for hours, but I was just kind of curious as to hear some of the growing pains and um, some of the process going from scaling from one to 15 is that's mm-hmm. amazing and impressive. Tell me about your process and how all that happened. Yeah, I mean, first I can say that that I probably wouldn't recommend scaling in the way that we did. You know, we we probably waited a little bit too long to to put some of those things in place. The the first thing that I say is in in terms of growing pains or maybe things I wish we would have done differently is uh, hiring team members earlier on. Uh, so like right now, we've got a, a pretty decent uh, virtual assistant team that, that ha- handles most of our day-to-day operations uh, and a few support staff that, that kind of help the, the VAs as well. But we literally waited until we had 15 properties before we onboarded uh, any help. And we onboarded wow. all three of our virtual assistants at one time. So it was just a complete wow. kind of, you know, <laughs> train wreck uh, trying to set up all these properties and launch them while also training these people. So my advice to everyone now is that if you if you have intentions of growing uh, your portfolio beyond one or two properties, I would hire that first VA immediately. And there's a tremendous amount of value that comes along with uh, a only having one property uh, to really train them up on, and then they get really good at that one property. And now, as you start adding additional units, it's not about trying to train them up on how you do business. It's just, okay, hey, what are the nuances of this one particular property? So if you're listening and you do want to scale beyond that, hire that VA today and and really get them indoctrinated now. So that was one big challenge for us or, or one mistake I say we made that, that kind of came back to bite us in the butt. Um, I think another mistake that we made, and this is something that we're we're just like recently really starting to, to, to dig into. And I don't know if it was a mistake because we... We couldn't necessarily predict what was going to happen, but we're pretty heavily concentrated in just a few markets right now. And one of those markets, Joshua Tree, has seen uh, a big pullback in terms of revenue. Um, I think across the entire market, it's probably down like 20% year over year, like aggregate, you know, the entire market. And you know, we have some properties you're doing well, but we do have some properties that are kind of feeling the impacts of that. And you know, we, we have these discussions internally of, okay, was it smart to go deep into one market? Because we definitely got some economies of scale. We had a really great deal flow in that market. We, we, we built a cleaning company in that market to kind of support our, our operations there. So some things that really uh, served as well. But now, now we're seeing, okay, if, if one market has a pullback and it's a big concentration of your portfolio, now your entire portfolio is kind of being uh, impacted. So I don't know if I would change that though. Because I think in, at the time it made sense, but it is something we're trying to, uh, I think, adjust for moving forward, so that we we kind of have our our eggs spread out across multiple baskets. So uh, I, I can keep going, but those are at least two that, that really jump out at me. That's so insightful because, like, that's yeah, the economies of scale is definitely you know an underrated facet, and one of the reasons why we're able to be successful here is we, we just, you know, built the team. It's pretty easy. It's almost plug and play at this point. And it just gets better every property to the right. point where we you know, have a designer, we have a cleaner. It's great. But yeah, I just realized that's, that's an interesting, we haven't had that. And then that particular experience of some kind of pullback. Uh, but I've been hearing uh, a lot of, 
um, people getting into the game and going out that way, especially being in Southern California, like I, I am, so I'm super close to Joshua Tree. Do you think it's just saturation or why do you think that is out of curiosity? You know, I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking on this. And, you know, before I answer that, uh, Drew, let me let me say this. Even though you're seeing some markets, I, actually, let me let me take it even further back than that. There, there have been tons of headlines, uh, both from influencers and even some people who have no business talking about the Airbnb space, talking about the the Airbnb bust and how the entire Airbnb asset class is doomed and no one's making money anymore. And you're an idiot if you buy an Airbnb today. And you know, a lot of that I think is just attention grabbing and, and folks trying to get clicks. Mm. The Airbnb space, like every other type of real estate, is uh, local. And there are some markets where, yes, revenues have pulled back. Uh, however, there are plenty of markets. There's over 19,000 cities across the United States. And it would be insane to say that all 19,000 cities are no longer profitable for Airbnb investments. Sure. Uh, we actually put it out a YouTube video uh, a couple of weeks ago where we highlighted uh, five markets across the country where revenues have gone up. So there, there are still many markets across the country where if you buy a short-term rental today, you're investing in a market that are, that's seeing revenue move in the right direction. Um, so I, I just want to preface it with that uh, because I don't want people to hear what I'm saying and say, see, we told you uh, the Airbnb bus is real, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the Joshua Tree specifically, and I've been spending a lot of time trying to think through this, like, okay, what 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 is going on in that market? Um, I, I think there's a couple of factors at play. First, uh, there was a, a massive increase of supply across all markets, right? Uh, like Airbnb in general, sure. 50% of the listings that are active came online after 2020, like just as a platform. That's which crazy. Massive, right? Crazy, yeah. uh, and some markets saw supply, the, the number of listings increase at a faster rate than others. I, I think Josh Drew is one of those markets that did see a, a rapid increase of supply. Right. Uh, so we're in the situation where even though demand hasn't necessarily gone down, but the rate of supply has outpaced demand, uh, I think, in that market. And I think the other challenge we're seeing is that because so many of those hosts are new, they don't even really understand how to uh, account for like seasonality in their market. So when they get into the slow season, which is you know the summertime and, and Joshua Tree, their their first instinct is just to pull down prices because they're like, oh my god, my booking lead time is no longer you know twenty plus days. It's like you know ten days or something like that. My prices must be too high, so let me let me pull them down. And if you get enough hosts that have that kind of knee-jerk reaction, now the entire market is being pulled down. And I think that's what happens when you get too many new hosts in, in one market. So that's that's one theory of mine. I'm still trying to see if that if that's accurate. I think the other challenge in Joshua Tree specifically is that, uh, and, and I'll, I'll I'll compare Joshua Tree to some of the other markets that are that are a little bit more popular. Uh, Destin, Florida. Right, one of the more popular beach destinations, Galveston, uh, Texas, another popular beach destination. Um, in those markets, the, the 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 draw is the water, and if you're oceanfront or if you're incredibly close to the water, you have this insulation around your your pricing because people are always going to pay more to be oceanfront. If you're in even a place like the Smoky Mountains. People typically pay pay more for views. If you have a great view in the Smoky Mountains, you can typically charge more than someone who doesn't have a view. If you're super close to the parkway, we have one of our properties is like right on the parkway in the Smoky Mountains. You can typically charge more for that as well. 
in uh, like a lake destination, if you're lakefront, if you're near a river and you're close to the water there. So some of these markets have this this kind of built-in insulation around pricing because people are always going to be willing to pay more to be close to whatever that thing is inside of that market. Sure. When you look at Joshua Tree, the the main, uh, I guess, like thing in that market is the national park. But what you're seeing is that the top performing properties in that market aren't all necessarily concentrated right at the entrance of the park. Like when you look at the heat map for Joshua Tree, there are top performing properties all over that that area. So what does that mean? It means that I can basically pick any parcel inside of Joshua Tree, doesn't matter where it's at, and I have a good chance of being successful. So since there is no like way to insulate your pricing as more units come online, if I can drop a property here and drop a property here and drop a property here, and they all have the same chance of being successful, as more units get built, as more units get added on, the competition really does increase. So as we start to look at other markets for ourselves, we really are trying to identify markets where there is that kind of insulation around pricing, where we can say, okay, if we buy near this lake, or if we buy very close to this river, or if we buy very close with, with this view, we know that we're going to be insulated from new supply that's coming on. Right, like a premium. Have you considered uh, kind of building that value within, such as going like super novel, like a Star Wars themed, or, <laughs> you know, you already know where I'm going with yeah. that. You know, so we have experiments with that a little bit. Um, one of our best performing properties in that market, uh, we spent $12,000 uh, renovating the garage into a, a Mario-themed game room. And that that property has done pretty consistently well for us. Um, so we're, we're kind of going through right now where we're adding game rooms to all of our larger properties that have the space to do that. Um, the challenge is that a lot of our properties out there are tiny homes. They're 391 square foot studios that, that don't even have garages. So we're trying to identify, okay, what are the things we can add to those properties from an amenity standpoint to still really make them stand out? And honestly, I think in that market, the big differentiator moving forward will be properties that have in-ground pools. When we started investing in that market in 2020, uh, almost no listings, very few listings had hot tubs. Like it just wasn't a big amenity out there. And since our first properties were in the Smoky Mountains where every single big property has a hot tub, we said, man, why is no one doing this out in, in Joshua Tree? So over 2021, we added uh, hot tubs to every single one of our listings and we immediately saw a jump in revenue. I think the next kind of hurdle in that market will be uh, in-ground pools. And I think it'll probably even have a bigger impact than the hot tubs did a few years ago because A, uh, hot tubs are relatively inexpensive. I can go to Wayfair right now, put down 500 bucks and finance a hot tub for like 200 bucks a month. I can have it shipped and delivered within like less than four weeks, like an installed. Uh, a pool, $50,000, $60,000, $70,000 to get one of those built out. Wayfair is not going to finance a, a hot tub or, or a pool install for me. And at the time to get those installed is three to four months, right? So bigger capital, bigger um, hurdle to get that installed. So we're, we're trying to identify, okay, how can we start putting maybe some amenities that are harder to replicate inside some of our properties now? Or, yeah, and it's Joshua Tree, which is just always hot. So Yeah, always hot. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, then sorry, I'm going to totally just take over this whole conversation if you don't say something now. <laughs> I got like a thousand questions. That was good. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you, Tony, that, you know, you mentioned getting into early in the game with uh, VAs and stuff. And we'll be honest, mm -hmm. you know, so we, we've been playing the same game around the same time. You start 2018, right? Uh, we got our first uh, in 2019, actually. Yeah, 2019. Okay, so you started a little bit later. So what we have, our issue is we don't have a lot of cash flow. Mo almost all of our properties is in California. 
So literally, we've been supporting this business, just Drew and I working 25 hours a day, nonstop, mm-hmm. and using our income. We both have high-paying jobs. I have a W-2, and Drew has a music school business. You can see he's sitting there, right? So this is how we're able to support it as is. So how do you say for people listening, they're like, hey, man, that's cool. Tony's like, yeah, bro, start with 50 VAs, and you have 15 properties. You know, People are like, mm, that doesn't make sense. How do, how do you, What do you tell to those guys? Um, so, uh, you know, if, if I can ask a few questions just to get some, some clarity here. So yeah. you said the, the majority of your guys' properties are in California? Almost all of them are. We just have one duplex in Tennessee. Gotcha. And are they long-term, short-term? Like what's the, what's the mix? Uh, they're mostly, uh, long-term and then we started doing more, uh, short-term and mid-term now. Gotcha. Okay. And then what's the what's the investment goal for you guys as a duo? Are you guys investing for... Uh, long-term appreciation? Are you guys investing for, you know, hey, I want to do some some cost eggs and get and get tax benefit? Are you investing for cash flow? Like what is the the motive for the two of you as as real estate investors? Well, when we started, you know, we wanted to do the appreciation game and all that stuff because it is California. And, you know, we ran the numbers and stuff, but when when people don't pay rent, you know, and then California is like, yeah, we'll give them a couple of years to move out. And, you know, you, you're just ending up paying for it. So it, it costs us money just to run the property because of we're in a blue state. So yeah. our, our model right now is like we're going heavily for cash flow, including the midterm, because we talked to, you know, all of our friends, Sarah and, you know, Kathy Fecky and all those guys. So we're trying to get uh, leverage or, or hedge ourselves against these kind of uh, situations by going for a higher cash flow model, but going to Southeast states where there's also a population going in and you can get the appreciation too. Okay. So uh, a couple of thoughts that, that come to mind, right? And, you know, this is, you know, take this for what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm going based off of, of limited information, but a, a couple of thoughts come to mind. First, hiring a, a virtual assistant, especially if the majority of your portfolio is on the long-term rental side. Um, you know, you can probably find a decent virtual assistant to start with for, you know, four or five bucks an hour. And if you've got long-term rentals, you can set them up to where they're working part-time, right? And say, hey, I need you to be working from this hour to this hour, Monday through Friday. And you let your tenants know, hey, if you have a maintenance request or an issue, reach out to me between this time and this time when your virtual assistant uh, is working. If there's an emergency outside of those, then sure, reach out to me directly, but everything else should be handled during this time. And while your virtual assistant is working during those hours, they're checking maintenance requests, they're whatever, updating your lease agreement, like anything you need them to do on the long-term rental side. But you can start off by uh, limiting them to working, you know, X hours per day. The, The second piece to that and this isn't even necessarily about the the virtual assistant side, but it's like if your if your goal is cash flow, then I would be reevaluating the the properties that, or, or at least the strategies that I have for those current properties. Uh, if you guys are long term renting uh, the properties in California, can you switch those to uh, medium term rentals, where maybe you're going to get more cash flow? Can you switch those to where you're uh, renting by the room? as opposed to renting out the entire property and, and maximize your cash flow that way. So then you can't afford to bring on that help. Because I, I think the challenge that a lot of new investors make uh, or face, I guess, and, and maybe the, the mistake that they make is that you, you have to work backwards from what your goals are, right? Um, my, my goal is to own $1 billion worth of real estate in the next decade. And I'm willing to take less money from my portfolio today in pursuit of that goal of getting to $1 billion. 
Um, and I, I, you know, I, I learned that lesson because a friend of mine talked to me about uh, patience of capital. And they shared the story of Jeff, Jeff Bezos, where he was being interviewed by some, some person. And they were asking Jeff, like, hey, Jeff, you know, why do you think Amazon is so successful? They're like, is it, is it your logistics? Jeff was like, no, it's not logistics. And Jeff, is it your is it your engineering? Jeff's like, no, it's not the engineering. Is it your is it your finance? Jeff's like, no, it's not the finance. Like, Jeff, well, what is it? What makes Amazon so so successful? And Jeff Bezos says, what what makes Amazon successful is that we have patient capital. Our competitors invest a dollar and they need a return in 24 or 36 months. We'll invest a dollar and we'll get our return in 10 years. And when I heard that, it really kind of changed my perspective on investing. And I try and keep that same philosophy of patient capital in my own business. So this ties back to what you're saying, Vince, about like, hey, how can I afford this today if I only, if I only have X, X units? If the goal is to you know get to wherever you guys want to be 10 years from now, then let your actions today support that. And if that means that, hey, we're not going to pay ourselves from our portfolio today because we want to be able to build the system, we want to be able to build the processes that support this, then be willing to make that sacrifice today so you can get paid back long-term. And sorry, That's that was great. me rambling a little bit, but hopefully that makes sense. I love that. Well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, uh, I've been... I did have a virtual assistant for us uh, for a while. He just kind of came with a lot less skills than I was hoping. Um, so I'm currently up, uh, on Upwork advertising for somebody with specific background on property management. It's interesting. I never considered actually having them help manage the longer term rentals as we have a property management company, of course, that does mm -hmm. that. But, um, and, and can it, let me, let me add something, Drew, if I can. So, yeah. um, one of the biggest mistakes, and we made this mistake ourselves, right? So I'm speaking from experience. Uh, but one of the biggest mistakes that real estate investors make when they try and integrate virtual assistants into their business is they go out, they go to Upwork, they try and find someone, uh, they hire them, and then they pretty much just like let them flounder, right? They don't give them any any resources, any support, any onboarding. They just hire them and say, hey, figure this thing out. And they get upset when that person doesn't... Um, um, perform at the level that they want. And I'm saying that because that's the mistake that we made as well, right? Where we hired the, a bunch of virtual assistants all at one time with no plan, with no training action, just, hey, come in and help me put out these fires, right? And it becomes a frustrating experience for everyone. We're frustrated because they're not performing at the level that we want them to. They're frustrated because they've just accepted this role where they feel that they're not getting any support or guidance around what, what uh, excellence looks like. So what we're trying to do now, and, and this isn't just for VAs, it's just for hiring in general, is have you thought about investing in real estate and taking advantage of all of those benefits without any of the work that is something that on the invest not only provides but has been providing since its inception with friends and family we have built an empire in a system of a wealth generating tool that is giving us and our friends and family that leverage in their life to create true wealth Go to onbeinvest.com for more to see if you qualify. And thanks for listening. So what we're trying to do now, and, and this isn't just for VAs, it's just for hiring in general, is let's say that you guys are working in the business right now. And say there's some task that you guys need to complete. Like we'll, we'll use your long-term rentals as an example. And let's say that you guys don't have the property manager, but say, say um, a, a tenant submits a, a maintenance request. When you go to fulfill that maintenance request, whatever steps you take, uh, before you do that, open up your web browser, download the... Um, have you guys heard of Loom? L-O-O-M? Yeah. Download the Loom uh, web extension for, for Chrome 
and just record a video as you're doing that thing. And if you do that enough over time for multiple different activities in your business, you start to build this library of activities and tasks within your business. So then when you onboard that virtual assistant, every time you ask them to do something, you'll say, hey, virtual assistant, I need you to uh, manage this maintenance task. Here's a Loom video on how to do it. Uh, I've done that with my assistant. I've done that with my digital marketing coordinator. Uh, we've done that with our virtual our virtual assistants. And it it exponentially increased the efficiency of the onboarding process because A, I don't necessarily have to sit with them every time I ask them to do something. And B, they've got a resource they can go back to over and over and over again. It takes discipline to, because it does take longer to, to do a task when you also have to record it right. and explain it. But yep. if you just do it once, then you've got something that can pay dividends over and over and over again. And yep. what I've graduated to now, like my my assistant here stateside, I have a, an executive assistant. Um, when I task her with something, I'll say, hey, please also record a loom of this. So that way, nice. even if she's the one that's figuring it out and say I have to replace her or maybe we bring some in, right. she goes to some other role, I've still got her now database of loom videos that I can pass on to the next person. So I think the more we can be proactive about documenting our processes so it's not all tribal knowledge, the easier it becomes to onboard those people uh, when you feel the time is right to do that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, and that was part of the of how I failed the VA is I had I I own a music school and I have a lot of SOPs. So funny you mentioned Loom, by the way. I just realized and I was just telling Vince this like two weeks ago. I just figured out how to quickly with three keys on this laptop start screen recording. And I've actually been this why this mic is here, by the way. I've been doing these trainings and I just actually had my admin I told her the same thing. We have this new software. It's like, hey, for every and all the parents are like losing their minds. They're like, uh, we can't figure it out. So I'm like, there's like two or three common issues, probably, right? She's like, yeah, I'm like, record a video and just send it to them from now on. And now yeah. that 20 minutes of training them every time is just a video. Right. And that's something I've been doing. And definitely I'm taking uh, ownership on that with this particular uh, VA, great guy. Um, just didn't have a lot of the the problem solving skills that I thought he would in the background uh, uh, that I thought that he said he did. But <laughs> definitely I left, I let him down on not having very thorough SOPs. And I had no video SOPs. It was just like, like screen grabs and like step one, <laughs> right. two, three, four. I've, I've recently graduated, but that's, yeah, that's something I'm shopping for now and I'm taking my time and I'm going to probably also something that was in the contract was they, they had to be uh, full time, eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. And we I, we just don't have enough stuff right. to, to keep them busy for that. So it was kind of a waste. So now I'm going to bring it out. And I'm going to have them do like probably four hours a day, Monday to Friday. And now they're going to have an SOP for everything. But I'm taking my time until I yeah. know we've got it all knocked out and taking that extra five, 10 minutes per task. I'm doing that right mm-hmm. now. Um, I'm not going to even... You know, do do them the 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 dishonor of just hey, go for it, good luck. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I've made that mistake for sure. So, great I think the, the last thing I'll add, Drew, uh, yeah. on the virtual assistant piece is, and you mentioned this the, this lack of problem solving. We yeah. we recognize that with with our VA team as well, um, and we realized it was somewhat self inflicted. And, and let, let me explain mm-hmm. why. When early on, when our virtual assistants would uh, come to us with questions, they'd say, hey, this thing happened. What do I do? And we give them an answer. Then they come back to us again. Hey, this thing happened. What do I do in this situation? And we give them an answer. And it became this vicious cycle where they were just coming to us with all of these problems. And we were just constantly solving for them. So even though they were the ones talking to our guests, 
it was almost like we were still doing it because we were answering so many questions that were popping up. So I had to tell, you know, my wife, my, my business partner, and we have a, a third partner as well. I told him like, look, guys, we are conditioning our virtual assistant staff to not think for themselves. So now, instead of us just giving them an answer every time they come with something, our first response should be, what does the SOP say? What do you think we should do? And like, give me more information. And we, you know, we kind of changed our approach to put the onus back on them to think for themselves. And now we've gotten really to a point where the amount of times they bring issues to us has dramatically decreased. And now they're just coming to us with, hey, this thing happened today. Here's what I did. Here's the solution. Here, here's how, how it panned out. And that that progression took some time, but it, it took some self-awareness and some reflection to realize that we were creating this monster ourselves by thinking that we were helping them by answering all their questions, when in reality, we were handicapping them from thinking on their own. Yeah, you were an enabler. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. <laughs> wow. Hey, guys. Um, so, um, yeah, there's only like a few minutes left. So I want to touch some number stuff, right? So yeah. when you started, I'm sure you had some money to buy your first, second property. At some point, yeah. you know, I'm I'm assuming that you started raising capital. How did how did that happen? And how did you structure those kind of deals? Yeah, great question. Um, first, I'll say, you know, shameless plug. Uh, we've got a book coming out with Bigger Pockets it's called Real Estate Partnerships. So I co-authored this with my my co-host from the Real Estate Retreat Ashley. Podcast. Uh, yeah, my, my co-host Ashley Care. So if you guys head over to uh, biggerpockets.com slash partnerships, um, we've got a bunch of bonuses for folks that, that order the book to the Bigger Pockets bookstore. But we talk a lot about uh, how we structure partnerships inside of this book. Um, but yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, at one point, you know, especially after I lost my job, we had to get creative in terms of how we were funding these deals. Um, so our partnerships have taken on many different forms. We have some debt partnerships where partners are just like basically giving us a loan and we're paying them back with, uh, you know, fixed interest. We usually use that on, on kind of shorter term deals like flips, uh, things of that nature. We have equity partnerships where, you know, we're, we're owning this property along with someone else. I'll, I'll give you kind of the leverage to pool. And I'll also tell you about like how we structured those things. So and I'll, I'll talk specifically about equity partnerships because I think that's what most people will probably get started with. Uh, in an equity partnership, there are a few things you want to look at as you structure that deal. Uh, the first and the biggest one is capital. So who's bringing the money for the down payment, for closing costs? Uh, if it's a short-term rental for your startup costs, like your furnishing and design, like who's bringing that or how are you splitting that uh, that capital? The second thing to look at is uh, ongoing management of the property. So if you've got a long-term rental, who's managing the property? Or even if it's a long-term rental, who's managing the property manager? If it's a short-term rental, who's managing your, your guests and doing all those things? Uh, you have finance responsibilities. Who's keeping the books? Who's going to make sure that all the receipts are getting uploaded and categorized the, the, the right way? Who's going to make sure that when tax time comes in, in April, that your books are clean and easy to hand off to uh, to your to your tax repair? Who's going to be doing all of like the... Uh, software related things, your your pricing, your digital guidebooks, your listing creation, your uh, just everything about the the software stack. So you, you just want to think through all the different things that people are doing uh, within your business on a regular basis and identify who's going to be doing what. So the way that we've structured a lot of our deals is that uh, typically our partners bring all of the capital so they they will bring the down payments, they'll bring the closing cost, and uh, whatever budget we've set up for the startup costs. And then we bring everything else. We do all the hard work to find the deal, we set the properties up, and then we manage the properties long term. And the majority of our partnerships are just straight 50-50. The partner who brought the capital gets 50%, and we've retained 50% for doing everything else. Now, early on, uh, you know, if you're, you're a newer investor, it can be a little hard to 
give yourself enough credit to to say, hey, I'm I'm worth 50% of the deal, even though I'm not bringing any capital. But here's the truth. The partner that's bringing the capital, the extent of the work that they need to do is signing a few papers, right? They're, they're docu-signing on closing day, and then that's all they have to do. The other person, if the if the other partner is strictly just capital, the other person, their work never stops. <laughs> their work continues for as long as the two of you or, or the group of you hold that property together. So it's incredibly important for new investors not to undervalue what they bring to a partnership just because they're not the ones bringing the capital. But to answer your question, Vince, that, that's typically how we structure our deals. We do all, all of the work. We have a partner that brings the capital and we split it down the middle. Uh, how much uh, money down are these guys putting? Are they putting 5% down? Are they putting... 50% down, what's the deal? Yeah, I mean, it, it's varied from deal to deal, right? Like on on the low end, we might have a partner that brings, you know, 30, 40,000 bucks. On the high end, we have some partners that bring over $100,000. So it depends on the deal, it depends on the property. No, I meant the total equity raised to close the deal. So let's say $100,000 property or the, the capital people bringing in 25% down and then plus furnishings or 30%, something like that of the cost of the project. Uh, again, like I said, it, it varies from deal to deal, right? We have okay, some deals so where, yeah, the, the down payment was maybe 10%. You know, oh, nice. we might budget another $20,000 for um, furnishings. We have other deals, maybe the down payment was 15 or 20%, depending on what kind of debt we used uh, for that specific deal. Um, so yeah, the, the the amounts vary from uh, from project to project. Project so to project. This is a little bit of a nerdy question. So even if the guys are just putting down 10%, do you still give away 50% of the deal? Because that's very generous. For some of those deals, yeah, yeah, we have, yeah, you know, yeah. um, but they're they're also carrying the debt in a lot of those yeah. situations, right? Sure. So there's some inherent risk on their end. And, you know, it, we're just looking for a win-win situation. Yeah, I think most sure. people get so caught up in like, hey, what's the perfect way to structure this deal? When in reality, as long as you and that other person are happy and feel that the deal is fair, at the end of the day, that's that's what matters most. Yeah, we we uh, structure our deals very similar, and we started off doing the same. You know, ten, fifteen percent, twenty percent. Now we do twenty five minimum, and then up to thirty. But we are starting to give away sixty percent of the deal because the total equity raises thirty one, thirty two percent of the total. Like if it's hundred dollars property, we raise mm -hmm. about thirty, thirty two bucks. So it's I think it's right. fair to give them sixty percent. Yeah, right. that's very interesting. And then do you still do private lending and those kind of things too, Tony? Uh, yeah, ma'am. We uh, we still leverage private money lenders as well. Um, we're nice. actually about to go out and raise two million bucks, hopefully next week, for a, a project that we're working on um, as well. So yeah, we're we're always looking for opportunities to to work with folks. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. And so uh, I know the we're running out of time. So if you wanted to um, tell people um, how important it was for you to get into the networking space, going to either meetups or uh, any events or conferences, you know, we were hanging out at Limitless and also your podcast and how that has changed your game. Because when you think of STR, I mean, it's, it's Rob built, STR Secrets, Avery, Paul, and you, right? Basically, that's that's the space. That, that's it. There's only, you know, you guys. So how did you reach that top and how, how do you tell people how to do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, first thing I'll say, man, is that it's just been uh, a really incredible and, and humbling journey these last couple of years. Uh, I closed on my very first real estate investment in October of 2019. Um, and, you know, here we are just a, a few short years later. And, you know, I've been incredibly blessed to, to be able to impact a lot of lives with, with the message that we're sharing. But a lot of that comes back to um, me being very focused on trying to, and, and I don't mean this in a transactional way, but 
trying to uh, grow my network as, as big as I possibly could. My, my, my focus was always making it a win-win situation, making a mutually beneficial relationship with folks that I met. Uh, but I, I just always felt that the more value I can provide to other people, hopefully the more value I'll be able to get in return. And you know, now, now we're at a point where, like I said, our, our podcast is the, the second largest podcast about real estate on, on the planet. And you know, like I said, we're just very fortunate to impact a lot of people, but it, it all really starts with you being focused on sharing your story with as many people as you can. Um, like I said, I, I had the podcast before I ever started investing in real estate. Um, the guy that introduced me to short-term rentals, I met him at a meetup locally uh, here. Um, and you know, just so much of my life has been impacted by the people that I've met. Um, so for everyone that's listening, if there's one thing that you take away from, from this conversation here today, my, my hope is that you take away, you have a story to tell. And just because you don't have, you know, thousands of units or you're not a multi-millionaire with this big net worth, don't discount the story that you have because someone may resonate with your story, but not resonate with mine. Or someone may resonate with Drew's story, but not resonate with Vince's and vice versa. So everyone has something in their story that can capture someone else's uh, attention. And the more people that know you, that like you and trust you, the easier it becomes to build your real estate business. And you know, I'll, I'll finish with this example, like Brandon Turner, who is the co-host of the Real, of the, uh, real Estate Podcast and Bigger Pockets for almost a decade, he has grown this massive following of people that know him, like him, and trust him. So that when he went to go out and start raising capital with Open Door Capital, he was able to do it so easy because he had spent a decade of just giving and giving yep. and giving and giving. Yep. So the more you can do that, the easier it becomes to really focus on your, your business objectives. Yeah, I love that example. Just give value, just give value, give value. And it comes back. Yeah, that's something that I've definitely noticed myself. And then, you know, people, everything is people. You know, yeah. me and Vince having this team, the cleaner, the VAs. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's great. And then lastly, you know, in your case, your your wife is your is one of your your business partners. How is yep. how is that? How's that juggling that? Is that too much? Is it awesome? Is it there other yeah, yeah. battles? You know, pe people ask that question often, man. And honestly, it is the best, <laughs> you know, nice. I think we're we're in a unique position where um, a lot of what makes us work as husband and wife is what allows us to work as business partners. And, um, you know, we, we've always done a really good job of knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses just as a, as a couple and doing our best to lean into those. So naturally, that just kind of happened as we started to build this business together as well. Like she does her things that she's really good at. I do my things that I'm really good at. And, you know, we, we trust each other to not get in each other's way. Like when, when, you know, she doesn't question me when I go out and I acquire a new property for us to take down and I don't question her on her design choices, right? Like, Hey, if that's what you think looks great, I trust you. And she's like, Hey, if, that, if that's the property you think we should buy, I trust you. So we, we've just gotten into a really good rhythm where we each get to operate in our unique areas of genius and, and we respect each other for that. Love it. That's awesome, man. Any last, um, Thoughts for the listeners, is this market something we should sit out and come back uh, 20 years later when the market's easier? Yeah, please do. That way I can buy a few more properties for myself. But um, yeah. no, I mean, my, my advice to people is that if you find a deal today that cash flows at whatever, a 7% interest rate, why wouldn't you buy it? 
because only two things can happen from there. The first thing is that interest rates will continue to go up and then you'll be pissed that you, you know, now have to pay 9% instead of 7% or interest rates will go down and then you just refinance a 7% deal down to a, a 5% deal and you've just gained even more cash flow. So I, I think people always, you know, they, they, they get into this mode of let me wait for the right time when, when that's not the right strategy. The, the, the right thought process should be what is the right action given the current environment? How do I need to adapt my approach so that it does make sense in today's environment? Because I guarantee if you look at any recession over the last decade, there were still real estate investors that were buying properties, right? Yeah. So it's about how can I adjust my strategy to fit today's unique environment? That's awesome, man. Thank you so much uh, uh, for coming on the show. And uh, if people want to get a hold of you, how should they do it? Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys having me on. And, and I really do hope that the folks got some value from this. I'd say first, biggerpockets.com slash partnerships. Like I said, we, we just launched this book, my first time ever being a published author. So really surreal experience. Yes. If you guys go over to biggerpockets.com slash partnerships, you guys can pick up a copy of the book there. Uh, otherwise, I'm on Instagram at Tony J. Robinson, uh, on YouTube at The Real Estate Robinsons. And then, like I said, uh, the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast. Catch me there two times a week. Uh, we, we do our best to share as much knowledge as we can for, for folks that are getting started in the real estate space. Hey, thank you Love so it. much, Ben. Thanks for you guys. Thank yeah, you. Man. Thank you guys. Hey Tony, can you do us a quick favor? Uh yeah. can you do like hey uh say hey welcome to the Ari Social. I'm Tony, you know, listening to Ari Social podcast. We'll put it yeah, on yeah. the top. Yeah, of course, man. All right. Yeah, cool. I don't know about you, but I definitely like to see five-star reviews on any service or any product before I purchase. Please take a second to leave us a five-star review, whether you're listening to it on Apple, iTunes, or Spotify, or whatever platform. Take a second. It goes a long way. Helps us a lot to grow the channel. And thanks for listening.